Section 13 of The Age of Anne by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13 The Fortunes of Parties. It may be doubted whether the fortunes of English parties have ever had so great an effect upon the history of Europe as in the reign of Queen Anne. The development of parties in that reign is also important as the beginning of the influences which extend to our own days. It has on these accounts been thought advisable to speak of them at some length and to collect their history into one chapter. It was indeed at an earlier time than this reign that the two great parties ranged themselves in opposite camps under the names of Whigs and Tories. These parties represent two different principles in the human mind. Some men are more disposed to attach importance to authority, some to liberty. The former will rally round a monarchy, the latter round a republic. In one great earlier contest in English history, matters had been pushed to extremes, and one principle had triumphed in the civil war, the other in the restoration. But men had learnt a lesson from the history of the seventeenth century, and there were very few on either side who were not content with a more moderate application of their principle. It may be well to sum up the points of contrast between the two parties at this time. Both parties were content with the shape which the English constitution had assumed. Thus both acquiesced in the monarchy and in government by means of a parliament. The memory of 1660 secured the monarchy from attack. The memory of the long contests between the Stuarts and their parliaments, confirmed by the victory of 1688, secured the privileges of parliament. The opposition between the parties was therefore narrower. The Tories believed in the divine origin of the monarch's authority. The Whigs did not. The Tories wished the sovereign to have greater power. The Whigs wished him to have less. According to the French epigram, in a constitutional monarchy the king reigns but does not govern. The Whigs held this view of a king's duty, but the Tories would have made monarchy more of a reality. The Tories felt that the revolution of 1688 was a necessity, but one which they disliked. They would have preferred not to disturb the Stuarts, and the Jacobites, as those were called who wished to restore the Stuarts, may be regarded as the extreme section of the Tory party. That revolution was the work of the Whigs, who always attached to it the epithet of Glorious. William was their favorite king, and the representative of their ideas. Yet William had a much larger share of political power than is thought in the present day to lie within the province of the sovereign. He had a very great influence in shaping the foreign policy of England. But it was on matters connected with religion that the distinction between the parties was most widely marked. The Tories were the church party, those to whom the rights and doctrines of the established church were dear. They were very hostile to dissenters, and perhaps scarcely less hostile to the Roman Catholics. The Whig party was in favor of toleration. To this party the dissenters belonged, for they owed to it all the rights which they possessed, as well as those churchmen who preferred the doctrines of their own church 
yet considered other forms of government and modes of worship lawful bishop burnet tells us that in this reign the distinction between high and low church was first known but when he proceeds to explain it we see that it is almost the same as the difference between the whigs and tories queen anne was a steward by nature and training her inclinations were toward the tory party it is the duty of a sovereign in this country to belong to no party queen anne really strove to rise to the height of this duty of the importance of which she was fully aware more than once she herself expressed it but sometimes her inclinations were too strong for her sense of duty and whenever this was the case her inclinations led her to favour the tory party on being called to the throne she gradually removed the ministers of her predecessor who belonged to the whig party and supplied their place with others of her own selection she did not change the whole ministry for neither in william's reign nor in the early part of anne's was it considered necessary that all the ministers should belong to one party she was under the influence of the marlboroughs whilst important places in the royal household and about the queen's person were given to his wife very high places in the state were conferred on the earl of marlborough and it was in accordance with his desire that godolphin was appointed to the office of lord high treasurer which corresponded to the modern position of prime minister godolphin and marlborough were tories but they threw themselves heartily into the war in accordance with the plans of king william because it was william's policy the war was dear to the whigs because it was opposed to louis who was protecting the stuarts the tories were but lukewarm in the prosecution of it it therefore came to pass that the ministers received warmer support from their opponents the whigs than from their natural allies the tories nor was it wonderful that under these circumstances a change came over their own views and that godolphin and marlborough gradually passed over into the whig camp a measure called the occasional conformity bill may be used to gauge their change according to the test act no one could hold office under the crown or be a member of a corporation without taking the sacrament according to the rites of the church of england it had come to be the practice that many who were really dissenters qualified for office by obeying the act they were called occasional conformists and were very obnoxious to the tories and high churchmen a zealous tory in the house of commons brought in a bill punishing this occasional conformity very severely by it any one who had taken the sacrament according to the test act and afterwards attended a dissenting place of worship was to be prevented from holding his appointment and fined one hundred pounds besides five pounds a day for every day that he had discharged the duties of his office after going to the conventicle this measure quickly passed through the commons but in the house of lords it met with sturdy resistance the government strained every effort to overcome the opposition even prince george of denmark the queen's consort himself a lutheran and an occasional conformist was urged to come down to the house of lords to vote for the bill my heart is vid you he is reported to have whispered to some who were voting in the opposite lobby but notwithstanding the zeal of the government the whig lords so altered the bill that the tory commons refused to accept it 
a prorogation stopped further dispute. In November of the same year, 1703, this measure was brought forward again, but this time the support of the bill by the government was very lukewarm. Godolphin and Marlborough were separating themselves from the high Tories, and beginning to look to the Whigs for at least some support. They tried to dissuade their friends from bringing the bill in, but in the division they voted in its favour. It was defeated in the Lords. Next year the bill was introduced again, and some members of the House of Commons, indignant that the bill which they favoured had so often been rejected in the upper house, proposed to tack it to the bill of supply, so that if the lords threw out the bill they would have the responsibility of cutting off the supplies of the government. It is a rule of Parliament that the House of Lords may not make any alteration in a money bill. They can reject it, but cannot amend it. The practice, therefore, of tacking, that is, joining another bill to a money bill, would, if unscrupulously employed, enable a majority in the Commons not only to defeat the Lords, but to deprive them altogether of their constitutional right of making amendments. On this account the practice has been made illegal. The proposal to tack, however, was on this occasion rejected in the Commons, and when the bill came before the Lords, Marlborough and Godolphin gave their votes against it though neither of them spoke. In the elections of 1705 the ministers used their influence against the tackers. Give them no quarter was Marlborough's advice. The result of that general election was that the Whigs obtained a majority and the occasional conformity bill for the present slept. The leaders of the Whig party at this time were five Whig peers who were called the Junto. Four of them had been ministers of King William. The man of greatest eminence among them was Lord Somers. There was no Englishman in whom King William had placed such confidence, and no one who had so well deserved it. The son of a Worcester attorney, he had risen to the post of Lord High Chancellor, yet he so conducted himself that he seemed born in the purple. He was remarkable for the gentleness of his manners and the benevolence of his disposition. His opinions were strongly Whig, yet he was always remarkable for the moderation of his counsels. His virtue and wisdom had raised up enemies against him. Toward the end of King William's reign it was discovered that he had lent money to a sea captain who became a pirate and was well known as Captain Kidd. It was not proved that Somers knew of any evil intentions on the part of the sailor, but the storm against him raged so furiously that when King William made him a grant of crown lands, the feeling against him was renewed, and, as the easiest way of quieting the storm, Lord Somers was dismissed from office. He lived in dignified retirement, watching the course of public affairs. With or without office, he was the leader and guide of the Whig party. Of the five members of the Junto, Charles, Earl of Sunderland, son-in-law of Marlborough, was the youngest, and had also the reputation of being the most violent Whig. When the two ministers, Marlborough and Godolphin, were depending more and more upon the Whigs for support, the Junto stipulated that Sunderland should be made a Secretary of State as the price of this support, and as a security that measures would not be introduced hostile to the principles of the Whigs. The first ally that the Junto secured amongst the ministerialists 
was the Duchess of Marlborough. She was disappointed at the lukewarmness with which the Tories had carried out the war policy. She persuaded her husband, and then both of them, urged the appointment of Sunderland upon the Queen, who resisted long and strenuously. Sunderland received another office, that of ambassador at Vienna, but the pressure for the original appointment was continued. Eighteen months later it was made, and marks a distinct point in the change of the ministry from Tory to Whig. An influence, however, was at work which was undermining the government. It was always said of Queen Anne that it was necessary for her to be under the influence of some stronger mind. While she was Princess Anne, as well as in the early part of her reign, her friend, her second self, was the Duchess of Marlborough. But the favorite's temper was imperious, and she presumed upon the Queen's friendship for her. Her own political views had by this time changed, but she could not bring the Queen to alter her views so readily. The Queen seems to have been prepared to discard her ancient friend when she was provided with another upon whom to lean. The Duchess had placed about the Queen's person a cousin of her own who was poor and in need. She never fancied that this act would prove hurtful to her own power. But Abigail Hill, the Queen's waiting woman, was a lady of quiet and pleasant manners, a great contrast to her cousin, the Duchess. The first intimation of the decline of her power that the latter received was the intimation that Miss Hill had privately married Mr. Masham, a gentleman of the Queen's household, and that the Queen herself had been present at the marriage. Abigail Hill, or Mrs. Masham, as she must now be called, was not only a cousin of the Duchess of Marlborough, she was also, upon the other side, cousin of a prominent Tory politician, Robert Harley, whose influence with her was very strong. Accordingly, the new favorite of the Queen used all her power in favor of the Tory party, which was already preferred by the Queen. This was not then merely a question of court intrigue, of a woman's private likings or dislikings, but a matter fraught with important political consequences. The influence of Mrs. Masham over the mind of the Queen led ultimately to the dismissal of the Whig ministers and to the reversal of their war policy. It led to the ministry of Harley and Bolingbroke and to the Peace of Utrecht. Thus it came to pass that the insolence of one waiting woman and the cunning of another changed the fortunes of Europe. It must not, however, be supposed that these changes followed immediately, although in the same summer in which Mrs. Masham was married, the Queen took the first step in opposition to her ministers. Without even asking their opinion or telling them, she appointed two bishops, men who were excellently fitted for the duties of their office, but were high Tories. But in the following year, 1708, while the Queen was turning more and more against the guidance of her ministers, she was compelled, in order to please them, to make changes in various offices which were by no means agreeable to herself. While the ministry was not yet wholly Whig, and while Robert Harley was still a Secretary of State, and Henry St. John Secretary at War, a clerk in Harley's office was found guilty of treasonable correspondence with the French. An unsuccessful attempt was made to implicate Harley in the treason. Marlborough and Godolphin represented to the Queen that Harley must be dismissed from office. When she refused on the ground that Harley was a good churchman, 
they declined to attend a meeting of the council and prepared even to resign their offices the queen would have found it difficult to continue without the services of marlborough but she held the meeting of the council and as was then the custom presided herself it was on a sunday as the queen entered the chamber there were black looks harley however opened his portfolio and began business i do not see how we can do anything said one in the absence of my lord treasurer and my lord general it was evident that the other ministers would stand by godolphin and marlborough not by harley soon afterwards harley and st john resigned during the autumn of this year the poor queen was much tried by the illness of her husband whom she tenderly nursed his illness was asthma after his death Summers was admitted to the ministry being appointed to the office of president of the council it was evident now that the ministry was entirely whig it is a rule of modern english politics that all the members of a government shall belong to one party that they shall prepare their measures in common be jointly responsible for all mistakes and as the expression runs stand or fall together this which seems an axiom now was not so regarded at the beginning of queen anne's reign she herself wished to have a ministry recruited from the moderate men of both parties what in modern political language is called a coalition her personal feelings had in this arrangement at first assigned the preponderance of power to the tory or as she called it the church party the course of events had shifted this balance for the next two years there was a cabinet entirely whig and this was followed by another entirely tory king george the third tried to form a government from both parties but the experiment was not attended by success there have also been other coalitions but all have been unable to stand and from the year seventeen o eight homogeneous party cabinets have been the rule in england a cabinet is a committee of the privy council in which all the chief ministers have seats though an important element in english political life its existence is not recognized by the law strange to say it was almost exactly at the time when the whigs had secured all the seats in the cabinet that the causes which led to their ruin began to work the alienation of the queen from the duchess of marlborough was almost complete it was said that at a public ceremonial the duchess spilt a glass of water as if by accident over the gown of her rival and she was not again invited to court the duke of marlborough fearful lest he should also lose the queen's favour conceived the idea of having his appointment as commander-in-chief confirmed to him for life it is quite possible indeed that his motive was patriotic and that he may have desired the permanent appointment to secure the allegiance of his country to the cause of the grand alliance he was warned by his friends that such an appointment was contrary to the constitution and one of them the lord chancellor told him that he would not put the great seal to such a patent marlborough persevered and actually applied to the queen who firmly and without hesitation refused these events ought to have made godolphin and his minister careful yet their next step seemed most heedless a not very wise clergyman named dr sacheverell a college friend of addison's who though of low church parentage had won himself a reputation for extreme high doctrines preached in london before the lord mayor and in derby at the assizes two sermons 
in which he attacked the revolution maintaining that resistance to a king was never justifiable and declaring that the church was in danger even in her majesty's reign not content with this general teaching he alluded to godolphin under a nickname borrowed from one of ben jonson's plays of volpone or the fox his sermons were published the matter was brought before the cabinet when its wisest members such as summers were in favour of letting the sermons alone or at best prosecuting the preacher in a court of law others however and godolphin most strongly were for impeachment before the house of lords the result was that an important state trial was made out of this trumpery matter thinking him persecuted people took the doctor's side he was condemned indeed when the impeachment came before the lords but his punishment was almost nominal for he was only prohibited from preaching for three years and his book was burnt by the hangman as the condemned clergyman travelled through england his journey was like a triumph crowds came forth to see him and to ask his blessing he was received everywhere with enthusiasm before this feeling had subsided there was a general election with the tory sympathy for sacheverell was united a general weariness of the war and the result of the elections was the return of a powerful tory majority the queen gladly took advantage of it to get rid of her whig ministers the long services of godolphin and a little later the distinguished services of marlborough were repaid with almost ignominious dismissal the duchess of marlborough who had for some time been kept at a distance from court was dismissed from her office and had to leave her apartments in st james's palace she was so angry that she tore down the mantelpieces and had the brass locks removed from the doors the queen did not wish all her former ministers to resign she pressed summers to continue in office for she said he had never deceived her five times she gave back the seals into cooper's hands but they stood staunchly by their colleagues and the new principle prevailed a new government was formed under harley and st john the work of this new ministry remains to be narrated one incidental result of the change was that the occasional conformity bill which had for some time slept was now passed almost without opposition End of section thirteen